You're listening to the SaaS Brand Strategy Show. My name is Ryan Copperud, and I'm here this week as I am most weeks. Semi-weekly. Semi-weekly with my friends and co-hosts and co-conspirators, Dustin Robertson and Mike Dracy. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I feel guilty. We let our subscribers down and missed a week. We did. We did. We apologize profusely. We've returned to your ears. Do not apo- I do not apologize. <laughs> it was August. It was Labor Day. Like half the country's on vacation. We get to take a little time off. We're also, we can say we're kicking off a new client. There's a lot going yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's that too. But yeah, we are back with the SaaS Brand Strategy Show with another topic. It's one that's close to our hearts this week. You know, we talk about category creation a lot on this show. And one of the things that we haven't talked about as much as we've talked about just the general concepts of category creation and the value of category creation is why people don't want to create categories, you know, and we hear these objections sometimes from folks that we talk to, whether that's leadership teams or just kind of folks out in the wild. And in fact, this one came to us from out in the wild from a comment thread under a post from a gentleman named Kieran Flanagan, who is the... SVP of marketing at HubSpot. And it's a long post, as many are on LinkedIn these days. So I'm not going to read the whole post. Different pod. Yeah, different pod to go through Kieran's whole post. But essentially, what Kieran was saying was you know, if you're an early stage founder and you want to start a category and you want a marketing leader who's going to start a category, a lot of those businesses are going to fail at starting categories. And the reason is because most folks relegate the category creation process to a marketing exercise and a marketing strategy that then doesn't carry through to the rest of the team, right? And so it has to be a collective leadership team efforts to create a category and push it out into the market. If it's just marketing leaning on everybody else to do it, you're not going to have the buy-in that you need from the entire team to go do a thing that's hard, right? And I think what we want to talk about today is that objection that it's hard, No one's saying it's easy, but there are a couple connected components of category creation and the difficulties and objections around category creation. So we're going to talk about a handful of sort of interwoven objections on this episode today. So with that as a tee off, I guess most of these objections sort of fell out underneath Kieran's post, Mike or Dustin, popcorn, what's one we see or hear or lot and one that popped up in Kieran's thread here. Well, just to level set on Kieran's post, what he was writing about was episode one of this pod. So we're in violent agreement with him that it is to create a category is a business strategy. It's not a marketing strategy. And so everybody has to be bought in and the product has to pay it off. And you know he's been at HubSpot for a really long time. So he speaks from authority in building one of the best SaaS categories in the world. So his post was thought provoking to lots of people. And so the comment thread was maybe 20 or 30 podcast episodes. We'll see how many we do <laughs> yeah, yeah. on the comments, but it was robust, if you will. Robust. <laughs> but his, you know, when he said it was hard, it is hard. And so everybody just kind of threaded onto that and decided to comment, yeah, it is hard. And here's why. And, you know, here's why most people can't do it or shouldn't do it. Or here's why I think it's dumb to sit in a room and try to come up with a, name for a category. That's stupid. So these are the comments, the theme that it's hard and most people can't do it that we want to talk about today. And the number one thing why it's hard 
is everybody immediately goes to, there's no demand for your category when you create it. So now the marketing team doesn't have a place to get leads. So that would be equivalent saying, Salesforce came out with a cloud CRM. They were competing against Siebel, who was an on-prem CRM. And because it was in the cloud, there was no demand for a cloud CRM, which is true. There was not. There was demand for CRM though, and that's what they were selling. So as Lockhead wrote, I think it was in Category Pirates, the, he had a post called Damn the Demand. He talks about Peloton. So Salesforce damned the demand for CRM on-prem and said, hey, you need a cloud one. And so that's why when people say there's no demand for your category, they don't understand how this works. Now, there's some instances where you're SpaceX or something, you've built the first you know, reusable rocket. Okay, that's a new category. There's no demand, but it's also an innovation and you are the first mover and you get all those benefits. So that's different. In the ubiquitous world of software where there's a hundred tools that do the same thing for almost every category, you're not inventing anything new. You might have a new tricky way of doing something. That's a limited time offer because that's a feature. And so if you don't have a point of view about why you're different and why you're going to take people to the new way from the old way, then yeah, you're just going to sit there and, and compete on features or you're going to, I guess, just say how you're different than the other people, but you're not really different because it's feature-based. And so it, it's a circular argument where like, there's no demand, so I'm not going to do it. Well, then what are you going to do? Just thrash around and feature parity? <laughs> I don't know. The argument like is goes circular really quickly. And it just shows a lack of understanding of how you, to use lockheads, how you damn the demand. Okay. So one thing I want to ask Dustin, you know, as a marketing leader yourself, and I have some thoughts about this as well. I want to take a quick second to empathize with, but there's no demand, right? Like, what is this institutional resistance to this? Where is that coming from, both from like a professional perspective, a personal perspective? Like, why is that resistance getting felt from these teams? Yeah, it's measurable that there's no demand. So when we did the e-commerce CRM, there was no demand for that. In fact, it wasn't really even a search term that Google recognized. It's if you Googled it, it came up for, what was it? Electronic customer record management, which was actually something from the 80s. It was wild. That it was eCRM was a thing, but it was very old. Right. There was no Gartner magic quadrant for it. There was no Forrester wave report. <laughs> the analysts don't recognize it. That's another thing people will say. Yeah. But the reality was we were selling email tool for e-commerce stores. And so that is where we got our demand. And then I would say we damned it or we led with our point of how we were different. We're like, well, yeah, you don't just want better email. You actually want a way to, to manage the customer lifecycle and make them more loyal. That's the problem we're solving. And so for that, you need a CRM, but all the CRMs in the world were built for B2B. So those don't work. You need one built for e-commerce. That's what this is. And this is how it's different than Klaviyo and MailChimp and all the other people we're competing against. And so going through that cycle, you know, we unfortunately didn't get to see it how they do fruition, but we did get to see that term become a term that showed up in Google, a term the competitors used. And so we did start to see people realize that our point of view was one that resonated with the customer's problems. And so other people started to use it, but it never mattered that there were zero search terms for us. That wasn't how we got the demand. 
I think part of what you're getting at is, you know, I think like a lot of internal go-to-market functions are so based on this sort of existing train, this motion that's already happening. And what you're telling someone to do when you create a category is, or what I think a lot of people think we're telling people to do is literally slam the brakes on the train that you're on as hard as you possibly can until the train comes to a full stop, get everybody off of the train, get on the train on the track next to you, and then slowly chug that thing into motion. And so some people are like, if that's what you're telling me to do, we're going to all fail. We're all going to get fired and the business is going to fall apart if that's what you're telling me to do. And I'm what I'm trying to say here is, I think what you're getting at, Dustin, is that is not what anyone is telling anyone to do when you create a category. What we're telling you to do is continue riding on the train that you're on and start jumping across the tracks. Yeah, it's a little dangerous and it's a little scary, but start jumping people and teams and trucking luggage over into the train that's coming up to pace with the train that you're on right now and slowly make that transition, not a hard stop and a full start. Yeah. And if you read Play Bigger, they talk about burning the boats. So there is, as a business strategy, when you decide to embrace your category and your point of view that aligns to your customer's outcomes, and you want them to tell and sell that story for you, you do have to abandon talking about the old way as something that you're doing. Yes. So bring people in that are looking for the old way. And then if you've done the work properly, you give them your point of view of the new way. And they're like, whoa, that's different. And that's what I want. And now that's where the magic comes. And so, yes, you're slowly jumping people over to the other track, but you're just doing it customer conversation after customer conversation as you gain awareness in the market of you have a new way, a new point of view that the customers are now telling and selling for you. And so that's the part that's slow to get going. But it doesn't mean you're not just still converting people are coming into the pipe from the old way. And in fact, what we've seen in the data is once you show the people coming in looking for the old way and you show them the new way, the days of close are shorter. The close rate's higher. And so it's the exact opposite of what people say is going to happen. The thing you thought you wanted is actually not going to solve your needs and meet your point of view. We have a different point of view that meets your needs way better. And this is actually the thing you want. And once you're exposed to that, when done properly, it is, in fact, the thing you wanted all along. Yeah. I mean, Mike, go into like how the story, you go in to close the deal, right? Why would the deal close quicker? And you've made the story that they can tell and sell inside the business. Because often it's really hard to be like, why do you want to buy this $100,000 software? Yeah. The key point of entry to the challenge of no one's searching for this or there's no demand out there is when you're out in the market, you promote the problem. You're not promoting your software. You're not promoting the company. You're promoting this problem that's existing because of this big change in the world. And people are like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, that's my world. That's the pain I'm feeling. Tell me more. And you bring them into your world, your story, your narrative, and You know, it's going to be different than everybody else's, which is just like, we're the best X for Y, you know, and we cost this and everything else. And it's like, okay, so these guys are different. And that's something I need to put on my short list because I'm kind of getting spun out on everybody telling and selling the same story. So these guys are different. And I think this is really compelling and it makes a lot of sense to me. And then if it has the empathy, which is kind of what we're all about in this thing that you talk about, Ryan, 
they become passionate about telling this and selling your story internally because they're able to put it in more personal terms. They're able to own the story and not just be reciting features, benefits, and prices. They're actually singing the song for you enthusiastically. Again, if you've done the behind the scenes work to get to the point where the story is going to resonate and the messaging is going to resonate, which is what we do, then you're going to have a better chance of getting more champions on the inside and actually, as Dustin said, closing the deal quicker. Yeah. When the narrative resonates. I mean, we've heard the amount of times we've heard like teams that come on marketing teams or demand teams that come on and they're like, no one's searching for this. We can't do this. No one's searching for this. So what's the alternative? You're going to play the same game everybody else is playing. Like, how's that going to work? Totally. And I think the like one of my immediate responses to that objection of no one's searching for is, is yeah, that's the point. Like the point is that you're doing something that is different than what everyone else is doing. And that's how you separate yourself psychologically in the market for the buyer to be like, oh, this isn't the same game as you say, Mike, this is a different game. Well, okay. My curiosity's peaked. Why is this different? Oh, and then if you go out there with both a product and a go-to-market strategy that backs up your differentiation, yes, now people will start searching for it because it's a better match with their point of view and their perspective and with their needs, the problems that they have as a buyer. And in 12 to 18 months, you have a head start on the terms that are associated with the category. And it actually becomes it's becomes less expensive because you also gain authority for those terms, not just being paid for, but also just from organic ownership. Right. It's your language and your framework. And now you're forcing other people to speak your language, not speaking the same language everyone else is already yeah. speaking. And again, it might take 12 to 18 months to get some of that traction. But if you're doing your go-to-market and doing some like really interesting content. I don't love that word, but if you're doing some interesting, you know, promotional activities around the idea and the point of view and the category, then you're going to have that jump start when it does gain traction. When your competitors see they're losing business to you. Right. Another one that I enjoy that is related to this difficulty or there's no demand is the analysts don't recognize it. And I know we've talked about analyst relations on this show before, and we all have some I'd say some thorough opinions on the concept, Mike or Dustin, any response to the connected objection of difficulty? There's no demand. The analysts don't recognize it. They're not seeing demand as an analyst. You want to go first, Mike? (laughs) No, go ahead. You know this more acutely than I do. Well, first off, if you think that the analysts are still very influential in the discovery of software, then you should go back to 2015 when that was probably (laughs) the last time that was maybe remotely true. (laughs) So the information is flowing freely and people are learning about things every day. And before they come to your site, they already know 90% of what they need to know to make a buying decision. So the analysts and being in the Forrester wave or the magic quadrant just doesn't have the weight it used to have. And then finally, the analysts are going to be the last people to recognize the category because they need to know that people are buying it. They're telling and selling that story and that's why they bought it. Then the analysts go, oh, we need to make, this is a new category. So when Qualtrics made experience management, there wasn't experience management quadrants. Guess what though? Now there are for each of their things, there's a customer experience quadrant and there's the product experience quadrant. And so they broken down the Qualtrics product set into their own quadrants. And, you know, I don't know when that happened. I'm sure we could go figure it out, but it doesn't matter. Like Qualtrics had won the game long before Forrester or Gartner recognized them in a report. 
The question I always have is, who does that magic quadrant being included or having a category within there, who does it matter to? It doesn't matter to your customers. I'm guessing it matters to potential investors if you're going for your next round and you're able to say, no. hey, you know, no, not even that. No, the investors could give a shit. <laughs> if you're a company that's got, let's use Drift, that conversational marketing or wherever they're at now, like, and it becomes on like, okay, you've invested a lot of money and a lot of resources in getting on Gartner Forrester's radar. It's not just a, hey, by the way, you are now included. Congratulations, you're in this new magic quadrant. There's a whole game that goes on behind the scenes. And then what do you do with that when you're in there? What happens? It's an RFP point. Like it's a bullet point that I feel like people like to be able to put down is like here, if you're looking for tools in this space, well, we're in the magic quadrant for such and such tools. So we've got to be the answer to your problems. I wouldn't say it doesn't matter to any customers. I do think some customers still respect it, but anybody I feel like who's in the industry and knows how the analyst games are played, no one has the same amount of respect for it that maybe any of them once did. Is that a cover your ass move when you bring a recommendation to the team that what you want to buy, you're able to show the quadrant? It's a cosign, right? It's a stamp of approval by an objective third party. I'm throwing <laughs> up air quotes right now for all of you listening in your ears. An objective <laughs> third party said that this tool is better than these other tools. So when I take it to my boss, I can get clearance for purchasing the thing that I want. But we all know that they're not objective third parties, really. No, and they are useful. So though, you know, it gives you the landscape. So if you need to go and say, hey, I did an RFP process. Here's the landscape. We have these four people bid. It does stuff like that. But analysts are useful because you can engage them to do specific research and really bring validity to the problem point of view you have in the world. That's where they're valuable. And it doesn't, you don't need to be in the wave report or the magic quadrant to engage one of them to go and validate your point of view. You can pay them just to do that. And that is a much better use of the hundred, two hundred thousand dollars you're going to spend with them. And then you know what happens because you can't actually buy your way into these reports. That's not true. But how you get into those reports is you establish relationship with the analysts, and then they put you in. Or you yeah, have it's so kind of like investor relations, but it's different. Yeah, or you but have so similar. much market share that they have to put yeah. you in. But yeah. you can't pay to get in, but you do have to pay to be connected to them in order to get in. <laughs> Plenty of wine is flowing. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. They can be useful. They've existed and are still part of our ecosystem for a reason. So not to totally bash them, but the argument that it's, you know, the analysts don't recognize it is again, that is not a valid reason to not do a category. Of course, they don't recognize it. You have to evangelize your point of view of the world. And ideally, you've come up with one that's different that's not already evangelized. Otherwise, you're following somebody. So is like is leadership going to, let's say you bring recommendations, like I've done this RFP, I've scoped out the, here's, you know, the final three, I recommend we go with lists. And is leadership going to say, if it's a new category, that, hey, I don't know, these guys aren't Gartner, or so we're not going to do it? Like, is there going to be that kind of pushback? And how do you protect against that? So I mean, selling, this is really just about the ICP you're selling to. So if you're selling into the Fortune 1000, they have all sorts of hurdles to be one of their vendors that you have to check long before are you on the Gartner list comes up. I mean, the SOC 2 compliance and the pen testing and the security level that you have to have and the amount of insurance you have to have and all of that stuff is a way bigger hurdle to get through 
then, you know, and if you've made it through all that and you've done all that and you're serious about selling to the enterprise, I don't think, are you on the magic wave? But wouldn't definitely wouldn't be on a list they would share with you. And I don't think behind closed doors, you know, if, if again, you've, you have a yeah. problem, you've resonated with them, the problem you're solving and how you solve it. And they think it's the future, the new way, and you've covered all of the security requirements they require you to do, then you have a shot at the business. Yeah. Yeah. I think I liked what you said, Dustin, about what you're relying on in that moment. If you say this is going to be too hard because there's no demand for it. And the way that I proved to you that there's no demand for it is that the analysts don't recognize it. That's working off the presumption that the analysts are the ones who are creating the narratives when really it is the market and the businesses inside of the market that are creating the narratives. And then the analysts are recognizing those narratives and formalizing them as a business. So it's your job not to ask them to formalize a narrative so that you can follow it. It's your job to create a narrative that is strong enough in the eyes of your prospects that a narrative gets created off of your narrative, not the other way around. Right. Just the nature of the beast. Analysts are followers. They're looking at what happened in the past and they do a little forecasting to see, yes, yeah, this has legs, but generally they're taking their cues from past signals. So just to make this a little real, I mean, we mentioned that we got a new gig. We kind of went through a similar exercise in landing this gig without talking about you know, the client or the category, but they issued an RFP for what was essentially, I think what they were calling a rebranding, where they had acquired a couple of different competitors and they're trying to consolidate it under one brand umbrella and have, you know, clean up the mess that's been created within the market. The market doesn't know what's going on internally. They're not super clear on what's going to go on. And so they went out for an RFP with like to rebrand and someone said, oh, you need to talk to DRMG. We got the intro meeting and here we are pitching them on SaaS brand strategy, which was not listed anywhere in the RFP. But we were able to say like, yep, we understand what you guys are trying to achieve. We understand the intent of the exercise. Let us talk to you about how we solve for that problem that you're experiencing. And that differentiation and the approach that we brought to the table, nobody else was bringing because they were all thinking about it from a rebranding exercise, got us into leadership and got us the gig. Right, right. And they're not rebranding. And they're not rebranding. They're doing the <laughs> Damn the demand, right? Show up where people are looking for the old way and give them a new way that speaks more to the core of their problems. Feel your pain. One thing I want to acknowledge is that, yes, it will be hard. You know, people saying it will be hard. Like no one here is saying, oh, people just don't understand. It's actually easy. No one here is saying that it's not easy and it's not going to be easy. And like Mike said, I mean, with some of the traction, it's going to take you 12 to 18 months just to be getting found for the things you want to be found for, particularly in a time where people are still, you know, clutching the purse strings a little bit. 18 months feels like an eternity right now, I'm sure, for some people who are potentially listening to this. But I think the point is, yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be expensive. But all we can ever say is it is worth it. And everything is going to be hard or expensive. So which hard and which expensive would you like to choose? And there is one version of the hard and expensive way of growing a business that has significantly more upside than the other one. I would add to that. It's also fun as shit. It's way more fun fun to create something from scratch than to try to like, you know, Frankenstein, some sort of value proposition onto a super commoditized category and, you know, be down in the red ocean to use that of, you know, the SEO and 
yeah, no one's searching for it. And that's actually great. If you give your team permission to like activate this idea and that's what a brand strategy is, like you own something in the mind and here's how we're going to activate it in the market. That is super fun. A hundred percent agree. You don't have to wait 18 months to see impact. 18 months you might have to see to like have the market telling it back to you. But you'll see impact the second you start leading those first meetings with why you're different and your point of view. And as long as you've done the work right where it resonates, you'll instantly see people respond differently and want to have that second meeting sooner. And the pipeline metrics will improve as soon as you start to roll it out. Totally. Mike, a thing you said is it's fun as shit. And part of the fun as shit is happens when people are given permission. I think that's a really good full circle comment because... Kieran's original LinkedIn post was, if this is an exercise and a strategy that originates in marketing, gets pushed on the rest of the business, there will never be enough traction. The permission to do something different, to be different, to push that boulder up that hill, to experience the inherent friction of creating a new idea, a new concept. There is inherent friction to that. There always has been throughout the course of history. To be able to experience that friction and fight against it and all of the things that come with it, the consequences that come with that, the inherent stumbles and trips and falls that come with that, you have to have permission, which is why it can't start in marketing. And it has to come from top-level leadership because top-level leadership has to be the one saying, it's okay. It's okay that some of this is going to be hard and some of this is going to be expensive and there are going to be stumbles and a little bit of you know friction along the way. And I'm seeing that. I'm allowing for that. And I'm allowing for you all to experience that. Now go experience that. Because I think that's where some of the objection comes from, right? Is Totally. What if I'm in trouble? We talk about feedback loops and there's feedback loops internally and there's feedback loops externally when you're putting ideas out in the market. And that's the whole beauty. That's the trepidation that comes from putting something different out in the market. You're like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, whenever you get that little tingle of like that little boost of endorphins or dopamine, that's a good sign. Yeah, You're doing yeah. something that's got a little vibe and a little energy to it. And you're excited about it versus like, up oh, here's another stupid, I'll stop swearing, you know, <laughs> routine blog post about whatever, you know, it's like, right, you never right. get a boost from that. No, no. From saying someone else's words yeah. differently or yeah. better, better. Yep. In totally. <laughs> All right. Well, if you've had objections in the past and you want to tell us additional objections you've either had or heard about category creation, send them to us at hi at drmg.co. If we didn't address it today, we want to know what your objections are or have been. If we got anything wrong, you can send us an email there too at hi at drmg.co. Mike, Dustin, anything we forgot to tell the people? I don't know. I think that just thinking about it, those are the big ones that we kind of roll across. Like those are the big, you know, and it's just like, and it's great. And it seems consistent. It's not just like one or the other. The, the ones that popped up on that post are the ones that we hear a lot as well. So we can do another episode on the difference between tagline and a category because they all, that's the other thing people are like, oh, you just get in a room and come up oh, with a team. You know, that's stupid. <laughs> and I, I was like, that is stupid. Well, it just goes back to not understanding what brand is within B2B SaaS. Like there's just such a, which is the opportunity that we're pursuing. I'm pursuing anyway. I don't know what you guys. (laughs) Trying to get aligned on how to talk about your business isn't stupid. But if you think you're going to create a category in a four hour session with the executives around a table, you know, that set yourself up for failure. So we can get into that. Also hire copywriters. 
I just have to say there was an absolute beauty in the exasperation with Mike just uttered the words, oh, geez. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. That's good. All right. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been the SaaS Brand Strategy Show. If you liked it, share it with somebody who you think might get some value from it. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can find out more by visiting drmg.co. And with that, we'll see you soon. Ciao.